The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. So thank you again to Teresa and Kaylin and Peter. And if you didn't catch this before, they'll have booths right outside that you can talk to them more. What I wrote today was already much shorter, given that I knew it'd be a shorter amount of time. Looking at the time now, I'm also going to edit this out. Uh, So Peter, sorry, really encouraging comments. Won't be a full sermon today, though. Uh, Just a couple thoughts. So Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, just a couple thoughts on today as we reflect on God's goodness over 73 years to this church. One of the things that many of you will do, and many of you have done this already in your testimonies, you've mentioned people who have been a huge witness to you to see the Lord. People that have been a huge impact in your life to help you see the God that is the reason we're here this morning for. In fact, some of you, when we walk across the hallway to eat, you'll see a table with pictures and memories, even a old television with a VHS tape (laughs) playing about old programs that happen here. And you'll think about people in your life. And something similar is happening in Hebrews. Many scholars think Hebrews is the only written sermon in the Bible. The other ones are letters, narratives, but Hebrews is a pastor talking to a congregation. And in it, after famously giving the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, of all these people that are witness to the, the God that we all know we need, you're sort of left hanging thinking, well, that's what God did. What will God do now? I mean, if those are centuries of witness to the power that God does through simple faith, through simple people, what do we do now? And Hebrews 12, 2 through 3 tells us the answer, and here's the very short encouragement. What do we do now, brothers and sisters? What do we do now, church? We focus on Jesus. So verse 2 and verse 3 say that same point in complementary ways. Very quick thoughts from there. So Hebrews 12 Verse 2, hopefully you have it in front of you. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Uh, In my original notes, I spent pages wrestling through this point. I won't do that now, but something that struck me the first time I read this text is those two words are a paradox. They don't normally belong together. You don't put joy and endure together. If something's wonderful, it's just joyful. You don't endure it. If you're describing something that you have to endure, it's because it's not a joyful thing. So why does the Bible put these two together? And I believe the answer is because it's showing us what true courage is. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's the presence of greater joy in the face of fear. Here the Lord Jesus is facing the most fearful thing that the God-man can face in his divinity and his humanity. He is facing a death so awful that the Gospels record him saying, my soul is overwhelmed. There he is sweating drops of blood. But instead of trying to dig deep for grit that he has internally, or instead of stoically deadening his heart to feeling, he feels something greater, something greater that causes him to be able to face fear, and that is he faces joy. The joy he faces is something that's actually outlined throughout this little letter, the letter of Hebrews. It's joy in pleasing his father. 
its joy in bringing many sons to glory. In chapter 2 in Hebrews, we read that he is not ashamed to call you and I his brothers. That's a joy for him. It's joy in a seed being planted into the ground and dying, but then confidently bringing forth much fruit. So brothers and sisters, when we think of all the blessings we've had in generations past, and we wonder, can God still do that today? I would encourage you to look to the courage of Jesus at the cross. That's the one who still gives us the strength so that we don't collapse in the middle of our race. Hebrews has made a pivot after chapter 11 to chapter 12, verse 1, saying that there's a race set before us. Every one of us has the race. Every generation, every church has the race that God has providentially placed. And the fuel for it first is Christ who had true courage that had joy and endurance. But let's look at the next phrase in Hebrews 12, verse 2. Not only does he have joy and endurance, but actually the preceding phrase I want you to notice. He's the founder and perfecter. The Greek word founder has scholars kind of wrestling with it. Does it mean author? Does it mean the Originator, I think the word forerunner is probably the most helpful. He's run the race first. And then given that he's run the race first, he can give the faith to completion. He's run it and he's run it all the way. This means Christianity is offering something completely different compared to everything else. Everything else in the world that we encounter essentially works like this. Here's the cause, here's the effect. If you do well, then you should receive well. Christianity comes in and says something totally different. No, actually, Jesus did well, and you can trust him. So instead of saying, man, maybe if I do well enough, then I'll be accepted, Christianity comes in and says, no, Jesus actually did it all. And our acceptance is through trusting him who ran the race and completed the race, and our faith is that he will finish what he began. Perhaps this morning when others were giving testimony, you were hearing about the way Jesus captured their heart or changed them. And you thought, that's really interesting. I've never had an experience like that. I don't know that I ever could be one of those type of people. But you see, the point they're making is it's not something they had. It's what Jesus did and what Jesus will finish. He's the forerunner and the finisher. But the fact that he's the finisher is made even clearer at the end of verse 2. It says that for the joy set before him, he not only did he endure the cross, despising the shame, but he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In the temple, the priest had no chairs because their work was never done. They would never sit. Here Jesus has not only run the race, he's finished the race, and he is seated, willing to intercede on behalf of all who put their faith in him. The work is over. The validation is his seated place of prominence. So first today, I remind you, look to Jesus. But now verse 3 I remind you, consider him. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. See, the strength to keep you from collapsing is not found by looking down at how fast your feet are going, but looking up at Jesus who finished the race. The strength is in looking at him, considering him, him who has finished him who has succeeded. We have a number of attorneys, lawyers in our church. We have a judge who I love spending time with. This text tells us about something that all of us have to consider. Every one of us has to consider Jesus. 
You know, there's so many things that when we read them, when we think about them, we just consider them, but we can consider them impartially or with disinterest. But we can't do that with Jesus. At home, I'm reading a George Washington biography again by Ron Chernow. It's taken me a very long time to work through. If you've read older biographies like the Peloponnesian War, it's so 400 years before Christ, you read it, but you read it impartially, disinterestedly. You, you can read it dispassionately, but you can never consider Jesus that way. And do you know why? Because we know deep down, if Jesus is who he said he is, that changes everything. So here's what I would encourage you with today, this morning. If you're visiting and you're thinking, I don't know how I feel about Jesus, the reality is you can't recuse yourself, but you also can't view him impartially. That means that when you have objections to Jesus, and you think, well, aren't all Christians hypocrites? Or, well, did he really do what he said he did? Or, well, and there are many objections that are fair, but when you think through them, understand that those objections are in part in existence because we know we can't view him impartially. We bring objections to bear. So this morning, I would encourage you to doubt your doubts when you doubt Jesus. Consider him fairly who endured hostility and consider him fairly so that, look at the end of verse 3, so that you will not faint, so that you will not collapse in the race that you are running. There's only one person who has strength that can both begin and finish the race, and he's the person who already ran up, the person who 2,000 years ago left heaven, went to Mount Calvary, died in our place so that all of our sin can be assuaged and we can be right with God, and then he offers his victory to us. I think this was illustrated really well. In July of 1981, a man named Bill Broadhurst decided that he would run the Omaha, Nebraska Pepsi 10K. And for him, that was an incredible thing to do because 10 years prior, he had had a brain aneurysm that left his left leg paralyzed. So when the race began, he dug his foot into the ground with incredible pain shooting up his body. And as the 1,200 lithe athletes took off, his slow plop-plop was well behind everybody. A 10K is not terribly long, and so some of the best athletes finished it in under 30 minutes, but Broadhurst took two hours and 29 minutes to reach the finish line. When he got there, with not as many people left, a crowd started to approach him because of one particular person who was there that day. That person's name was Bill Rogers, who's a gold Olympian runner. He's a well-known marathoner. And when Bill Rogers came up to Broadhurst and the crowd gathered, Bill Rogers took the medal off of his neck that he had won that day and placed it on Broadhurst and congratulated him for completing the race. Brothers and sisters, that is what Christ does to us. He has run the race. He has finished the race. He has everything we need for each step of the race. So whatever the future may hold, look to Jesus. Let me pray, and then we'll close in song. God, thank you today so much for Bill and Latrell. Thank you for us hearing how they came to faith. Thank you for Mike and Teresa, Lord, it's so encouraging to hear how they came to know the Lord. Thank you for Teresa and Kaylin and Peter, and thank you for ministry they're doing in this area. And thank you, Lord, there have been generations that have gone before us. We don't know for sure when our race will be over, but we do know this. Jesus Christ has finished the work, and he has completed the race. So this morning, our confidence 
must not be in how fast we think we can move our feet. Our confidence must be in the Lord Jesus Christ who has finished the race. This morning, that puts us in a couple categories. Those of us who are here as believers that maybe feel like we've run for a long time and we're tired and some of our most beloved people have gone on, help us to remember to look to Jesus. Perhaps some are here this morning and maybe like Teresa and Mike, they stumbled into a church not knowing it was homecoming. And here they are wondering what these people are talking about. May they consider Jesus fairly, perhaps for the first time. Consider him who is the way, the truth, and the life. Consider the objections they've had against him. And if they're really legitimate, consider who he is and what he's done. And consider that he opens his arms to anyone and he will finish the race with us on his back. Thank you, Lord, that he will one day put his victory on our neck by grace. In his name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, Go to ebcraleigh.com. That's e b c r a l e i g h dot com.